Hello and welcome to Nonbreaking Space. Nonbreaking Space is a show where we seek out the best and brightest on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and I, Dave McFarland. We're two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. Usually we're joined by our producer, Chris Inns, but uh, his wife had a baby just yesterday, so he is busy. Um, today, we're very excited. Our guest for this episode is Tab Atkins. He works for Google on the Chrome team, uh, claiming that his position is a web standards hacker. Uh, that previously, is, that's, that's, that's my actual position. It's on my business cards. Ah, okay. So he's not claiming. I mean, it is. It's there friends. So previously he was a web developer for a software company in Texas. He's also a member of the CSS Working Group and participates in several other W3C groups as either a member or a contributor, including the HTML and the Fonts Working Groups. Uh, Christopher, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Uh, just busy working on my book, uh, just trying to uh, get that polished up and, and delivered by the end of the year. And so just which book is this? Uh, I'm doing a book on designing web and mobile graphics, and so it's been kind of kind of interesting just to to see how much has changed uh, in the industry since you know I, I've been starting out since 1993. So it's like everything that we've learned since then has been like, hey, we'll just put this in the car garbage can here, and, <laughs> and uh, it's been it's awesome because like in in 20 years we solved so many problems. Uh, one just by technology improving so much. Uh, and like hardware and software, but just also uh, with you know with the work that you know W three C and and browser vendors coming together and saying like hey this is this isn't going to work and I think you know with all the discussions about HTML five you know all the you know you know with you know what, what you say about the spec and everything like that but it addresses a lot of you know solution problems that we've had with with the browsers and and kind of like our Solving a whole bunch of workarounds that we had, so it's it's been really kind of refreshing just to go through and with you know, like kind of think of it like as as with fresh eyes of how the how someone coming into this industry what they would need to be concerned about and and realizing how many problems they don't need to be worried about anymore <laughs> that right. we had to deal with every day. So. <laughs> right, but there are always new problems. Yes. So yeah. you know that's what your book's going to cover. Yeah. Well, let's uh, welcome Tab to the show. Hi, Tab. Hey, everybody. We're happy to have you on the show, man. Really. Yeah, no, super excited. Yeah. So maybe you could just give uh, for our audience a little bit of background about yourself, how you got into the web industry. Yeah, yeah, that's easy. So as Dirty said, I started out with a small software company back in Texas. That was just at the end of college. It was the job I did while doing college stuff. <laughs> I was tech support at the time. Uh, when I first joined up, and that was kind of a job. So I gradually started taking on small web de- design jobs like at work, like doing little features or whatever that we needed on our website, which was being handled, no, whole website was being handled by like our SEO company, and it was the pile of crap you've ever seen. And I've already forced you to bleep me. All right, awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really, really bad, and I just hated looking at it and touching it in any way. So I started building up my own web design skills, my own knowledge about this stuff, and gradually migrated myself into being the company's sole webmaster. Took over the site, rewrote it like five times, did everything else they wanted to do, and got myself involved in web standards as well at the same time. While I was learning stuff, some of the first uh, learning things that I came across were some posts by Ian Hickson, the editor of HTML5, Mm -hmm. Tantek Chelik, 
worked on old IE for Mac, did a lot of work in the CSS and HTML, and does a lot of really cool things today. Yeah. Um, and they had a lot of posts about the value of standards, about how to use them correctly and whatnot. And that really affected me early on. It just really got me the standards bug early in my web development education. And so I joined up with the CSS working group, just joined the mailing list, started posting every once in a while. Two years later, I was like actually giving proposals and writing things up, and they invited me to be part of the group. And then from there, Hixie poached me uh, for Google while I was at one of the standards meetings and started working for Google then. Fabulous. So what's your your role at the CSS Working Group? What kind of things have you worked on and what do you do? So within CSS, my very first project was gradients. That was the thing that got me like going, actually writing up the spec for CSS gradients. And that snowballed into the full image value spec, but gradients are still the most exciting part of that. More recently, I've been the primary editor of Flexbox, taking the old Flexbox spec that Mozilla had written up, and then WebKit had kind of implemented it, but it was really bad and Firefox's implementation was kind of bad too, and it was because the spec just wasn't very detailed and it wasn't very user-friendly either. So I rewrote the whole thing, nailed down all the details, and drove it through. And today, uh, Opera, Opera's preview build has unprefixed new Flexbox. WebKit's just about to unprefix theirs. Firefox should be following right behind. And IE has a prefixed version of a slightly older syntax version before we uh, finish changing up the names of some things. But functionality should be basically the same as what uh, we've got in the spec right now. That'll show up in IE 10. So for, for our listeners who don't know, like, can you just describe Flexbox and what problems it addresses? Or Oh, yes. Okay, so... As I said, I've been a web dev for like five, six years now. It's been a little while. It's been blurring into the past now. But um, I've always liked doing the design part. One of my favorite parts of my job was to take the comps made in Photoshop and turn into a PDF, given to me, and then just breaking them down into good HTML and laying them out with CSS and so on. But as everybody who's done anything non-trivial in CSS knows, layout is horrible. CSS is not a good language for layout, or at least wasn't a good language for layout. Um, Flexbox is the first of our efforts to make CSS a good layout language. It is a very simple form. It's basically if you took block layout, just the normal paragraphs down the page, Mm -hmm. stripped out some of the more complicated stuff that has to do with text rendering, uh, especially like floats and whatnot, which really complicate the model. And then, because you're simplified now, you can make it complicated in other better ways. Because Flexbox can lay things out sideways, up and down, reversed, whichever way. It can do alignment. You can finally center things easily in either direction. You can, yeah, you can do all sorts of ridiculous things that we did all sorts of crazy hacks, float-based things, using tables, <laughs> using whatever to get just some basic layout primitives, and Flexbox solves most of them. Almost all of the rest will be solved by Grid, which I've also started working on, uh, and Microsoft is working on as well. So uh, we have now with CSS3, there's a bunch of layout methods that have uh, been proposed and are implemented in browsers now. We have multi-columns, Flexbox, Mm -hmm. Grid layout is on its way. Um, Why so many, and what problems do each of those solve individually? So the thing is, um, layout's a hard problem. There's a whole lot of possibility space here, a whole lot of different things that people want to be able to do. So one solution is never going to fit all. 
all without being the most complicated thing you've ever laid eyes on. Um, so instead, we've taken an explicit path of finding small, well-contained sets of layout primitives that we can expose, and then just shipping those separately. So Flexbox handles one-dimensional layout really well. Anytime you're laying something out one after another, that's what Flexbox is designed to handle well. Uh, multi-column, though, is a completely different side of primitive. Even though in its specifics it kind of resembles Flexbox in some ways, it's still designed for text layout, just laying it out in multiple columns and so on. And similarly, for full two-dimensional layout, the kind of things that you used to use uh, tables for to do complex uh, page design, Grid handles that really well. Flexbox can do it, but it gets really complicated because it's not well fit for it. So we just try to break things up into useful, logical groupings, and then we'll ship those as uh, different layout modes or something like that. So the kinds of problems that, say, Flexbox solves, Flexbox is like for multi-column layout, for um, uh, vertical alignment, is that right? Basically, you can do almost anything that involves putting boxes in a line in some, mash, uh, some fashion, which it turns out is most of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm giving a talk just on Saturday with a bunch of examples for this uh, about Flexbox, but there are just a ridiculous number of places where you want to size things to fill a line or you want to align things in a particular way or just whatever. And Flexbox is a really strong, powerful primitive for doing all that with. So uh, in terms of like uh, support for that, so Flexbox has been in Firefox for a while, Chrome, mm -hmm. Safari. Uh, it's not currently in Opera, is that right? Like Opera 12? So, yeah, the old, coming. the old version of Flexbox has been present in Firefox and WebKit, which is Safari and Chrome, uh, for a little while. However, it's been really bad. Like our Im implementation is quite buggy, and I know that in WebKit at least, it's also very slow. Mm -hmm. It's like slower than table slow. It's a really bad implementation because it was kind of just thrown together. Um, new Flexbox is in WebKit. It's prefixed right now, but we'll be dropping the prefix very soon. It's in Opera, and in their new dev builds, it's unprefixed. It's experimentally in Firefox. I don't think it's on public channel yet, but when it does, it should show up without a prefix in it. So in the very, very near future, we're talking like small, like one handful of months. Uh, it should be everywhere in all the modern browsers, unprefixed and ready for you. And you're saying in IE10, it's in there, but it's a slightly different implementation. Is that right? Yeah, it's mainly just some of the names are different because they did a code freeze for IE10 uh, before we were done renaming some things. So but, where where do we find out about uh, the different syntax flavors and, and how to accommodate for these different browsers? Okay, well, you won't have to. If you just wait a few months for all the other browsers to unprefix, you can just run by the spec, and that will handle everyone but IE. So that's fine. Uh, IE itself should have a, like, I expect that in their developer, they'll have some, like, developer articles or something about using Flexbox, and they'll explain how the simple mapping is, because it's just a one-to-one. -one. We didn't really reorganize anything. We pretty much just renamed stuff. So it's just, instead of align content, you use line pack or something, whichever okay. one so, is. So you're not going to have to worry so much about... Uh, uh, kind of different implementations as much as just different naming conventions. You'll get the same layouts from exactly. IE10. You just have to name things slightly differently. Okay. Exactly. It's just like using like doing the vendor prefixed and then the unprefixed version together 
It'll be exactly like that. Same functionality. You just put the two things next to each other and they'll work the same. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I've been working on, um, uh, update of my CSS book and, uh, been doing my flexbox research and it's great i mean it's it's fun you know it's like wow this is how you know it should be to make multi-columns that's nice and straightforward and uh, uh i love it it's great so thanks for yep. working on it <laughs> oh, now yep. maybe you could explain grid layout and what mm-hmm. that is how it's different than flexbox and what problems it solves yeah definitely so a lot of the concepts behind grid layout, the ability to flex, the ability to align and whatnot, are straight up borrowed from Flexbox. And in fact, we're borrowing just some of the property names as well, so that it's really easy to translate uh, the, all the alignment stuff you know from Flexbox to grid. The big difference, though, is that Flexbox is one-dimensional. It's for laying things out in a line, even if the lines might break, but it's still essentially linear. Uh, while grid is two-dimensional, all the, and which most pages overall are laid out in a two-dimensional fashion. Individual pieces of a page are often linear because they're just simple. It's a, a nav bar that goes from left to right or a single piece of content that goes top to bottom or something like that. But the page itself is usually very complex. You've got a header at the top, you've got columns on the side, you've got a little extra section up in the top corner or something like that. And these can be done with Flexbox, but you've got to nest them all funny and it ends up putting a lot of extra like wrappers in your page mm-hmm. for no reason. And makes it very hard to maintain. Right. Uh, grid, on the other hand, lets you just set up one grid, say on body. And you say, I'm going to put a cell here, 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 and here. Basically just like drawing out a, draw to grid and name which cells of the grid go to what thing. And then say, this element go in grid cell A, this element gr- grid cell B, etc. So you don't have to worry about uh, the order of it in your document. You don't have to worry about... Um, them nesting up funny or whatever, you just go position them in the grid and everything's taken care of. This is especially important because it finally lets you do dramatically different layouts based on media queries for Hmm. mobile or whatnot. Right now you can do limited stuff, but you often have to distort your markup a bit or you have to give up on certain patterns because you can't easily translate them. Same markup, different styling. to make it work right. With grid, though, you can have almost unlimited flexibility in where you pr- uh, place stuff. So you can do dramatically different layouts in different devices, different device sizes or whatever, and get some really nice stuff out of a mobile layout versus a desktop layout for like no effort. Wow. So would you ever combine, would you ever use Flexbox within a grid layout or is it? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like I was saying, Flexbox is usually going to be most useful for pieces of a page, individual elements in the page, Mm -hmm. or grid layout is more for large-scale layout. In general, I think it'll be one grid for the page and then a bunch of Flexboxes for the elements. Uh But, of course, there might be places where you want a grid on some smaller element because it's complex for whatever reason. And Microsoft is working on the grid layout spec, is that right? Correct. Uh, currently, the editor is actually a Microsoft employee, Phil Cup, but I'm going to be picking up uh, co-editing on that very soon because I want to make sure it finishes nice and quickly because mm-hmm. we're, we want to start working on experimental implementation as well here at Chrome. Yeah. Awesome. So the, the time frame for grid layout is, is a bit further out in terms a little of bit. actual implementation in browsers. Right. We're aiming for an experimental implementation in several months, but I can't ever nail down anything more than that. And for actual public release, I would estimate like for for it to get to the same point as Flexbox is right now, where everything's like coming out 
unprefixed and totally ready to use, <laughs> I'd estimate a year, year and a half at most. It might go yeah. faster. I'm hoping that it will, but that's a reasonable estimate. But uh, we could start using Flexbox pretty much now, right? And uh, have it work in a lot of browsers. Yeah, I might, if I were an author, uh, delay just a little bit just for at least uh, Firefox and uh, WebKit to come out unprefixed. But that's a matter of a month or two. So, so is there some slight syntax variations for the prefixed versions for Firefox and, and WebKit right now? No, From, no, it's just in, it's just inconvenient is all. Yeah, I see, right. You have to write now, the same thing like three times, so yeah. So we've got multi-columns, flex blocks, grid layout, and then uh, Adobe has their CSS regions. Can you explain <laughs> what that is and how that fits into all this stuff? Yes, so regions are a really interesting new primitive. You can tell what, like... If you take everything that Adobe is doing, it's really obvious that they're trying to make, I guess, publishing work better on the web. They're trying to provide things that make it easier to do, like modern magazine layouts, mm -hmm. but in web pages. And Regions is part of this. Regions is just a way of making a single element flow across multiple boxes. So you can have, for example, um, a magazine might start with an article... The first paragraph of the article might be in an element that's like rotated off over a fancy picture, and then the rest of it will fill the remaining parts of the page with multi-column. Mm -hmm. You can't really do that well without some hacks right now. But with regions, you just flow it into uh, one box that you then go position up where you want, and the rest into the a second box for the rest of the page that is multi-call and does its thing. Hmm. So the exact like syntax, I'm not sure I'm happy with. Uh, the exact way they're presenting it. I love the functionality, and I really think it's valuable. But we might be doing some dramatic upheavals of the way that an author would do it in the near future. We'll see. So, it, so CSS regions is sort of like multi-columns, except that you don't have to have columns sitting side by side. You can have the text flow through any yeah. arrangement of boxes on the page. Right on the nose. Yeah, multi-call is a constrained form of layout of regions that yeah. does some things automatically for you because of those constraints. Like it generates more boxes for you for free. Whereas regions right now, you have to explicitly put those extra boxes, all the boxes you'll need in the page so that you can use them. So are there yet other uh, proposals out there for other types of layout methods that we haven't even talked about yet? I have always got a couple on my blog because I do a lot of like just half-baked standards devs up on my blog. Uh -huh. Like um, one thing I want to pursue at some point, but it's definitely low priority for me right now, is like a tab stack layout. Just because people do this all the time, you have a bunch of tabs, each one attached to one panel, and yeah. only one panel shown at a time based on whichever tab you click on. Mm -hmm. Seems reasonable, but you have to use JavaScript for it or use some of the uh, real fun like checkbox checked or not hacks mm, um, right. I'd, like, I'd like to make this more direct, more obvious especially because if it's presented more directly uh, accessibility tools can probably treat it a little bit better yeah, yeah so it sounds like you're envisioning maybe some of these kind of design patterns that have been around and are standard for web designers might get baked into CSS yeah, that's my whole point uh, I, as much as possible, try to find things that other people have already proven are a good idea and then just pull them into the platform itself so that everybody can use that good idea with a lot less effort. 
Awesome. That's great. So let's say you come up with an idea, like it sounds like you've got this tab panel idea. How do you, what's the process for you to get this going into a, a form that the CSS working group will discuss and maybe okay. act on? So are you wanting to know, like, just from my perspective personally or from the perspective of somebody else who might have an idea that they want to present to the CSS working group? Well, I guess both. I mean, you're an insider, so your process is obviously going to be different than somebody who is just thinking things up. So what's your process? Okay. They're actually not too different. I just get to shortcut a few things. Um, (laughs) You you have email addresses and direct phone numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you do anything with that. But mainly it's just find out what problems are there that need to be solved. Show, find some reasonably convincing argument that these are useful problems to solve. That solving them is worth the cost of putting more code in the browser. And then come up with a decent solution to the problem as well. Um, I always like end up starting with the solution part because it's the most attractive part of the whole thing, the whole process. But that's not always a good idea because oftentimes you'll be missing something that other people see real obviously. And it can be easy to get caught up on your one preferred solution that you came up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if somebody else, if somebody outside the group, if just a, an author there has some problem they want to solve, it's that problem part that's really valuable. That's especially true because I've been part of the CSS working group for a long time. I've been interacting with everybody and all the problems and solutions we've come up with for years. So I at least kind of automatically know how to navigate around some bad parts, some mistakes that are easy to make when doing design. Um, Somebody coming new to the group that's really good at web dev but hasn't been tracking CSS, like the development of it, might not know this. So coming up with solutions like preferred solutions to problems, isn't a very productive thing because it's really easy to fall into um, some nasty traps that you just don't see. You don't realize they're bad until we explain them to you. Um, So the problem part, the thing that is causing you pain, that's the most useful thing for us to know about because that way we can look at that directly and figure out how to solve it And maybe we can just take a solution we already have and modify it just a tiny bit to solve it rather than come up with something new entirely. Mm. So if anybody has any suggestions, I recommend email the working group with your problems directly. If you have some suggested solutions, that's great. Put them at the end. But the most important part, the thing we need to know a lot of details about are the problem and like examples of the problem. And and some problems, like it's where you kind of just rephrase it, just like these are problems that are like, I always have to do this, or I, or I always have to use JavaScript for this problem to solve this kind of design pattern, and I w- really would like to stop doing that, and I think CSS could solve it this way. Exactly. Okay. Like, um, I'm- so like, like with the tab panels, you would say, well, I'm always creating tab panels, and I have to create an unordered list, and then I create a bunch of stacked divs below that, and it seems really wonky. I need to then use JavaScript. So you're saying present that problem instead of saying, hey, I've got the perfect solution for tab panels. You would do this and this and this and this in your web browsers, and that's how you get it done. Yes, exactly. Um, another example recently, I'm going to start working on a scrolling module soonish, which is some new stuff related to scrolling. And somebody recently came up with a problem where uh, they did exactly the wrong order. They threw a solution out first. But um, the problem that they were trying to get was whenever they have like a long list of things, uh, looking like Twitter, and you want to like add new things coming in uh-huh. as they go along, if you put something new at the front and people are like scrolled down a bit and they're reading, it'll disturb the list. It'll yeah. shift everything down and they have to follow it. So he has to manually right now 
lay things out, measure them, and then automatically adjust the scroll position as he's adding it so that it doesn't look like anything's moved to the user further down in the list. This is something that CSS can do, like can potentially fix. It seems like a good thing to be able to control, like keep the scroll position stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a useful problem. Just describing the problem really well made it really obvious that, yeah, that's an annoying problem to have <laughs> to deal with, but it actually sounds like a really easy problem to solve on our side. <laughs> so how, do, how does someone present that problem? They go to the W3C or to the, is there an email address? Or? Yes. Uh, so you want to send an email to www-style at w3.org. You'll first have to subscribe. If you head over to, I forget the exact thing. I think it's www-style-subscribe at w3.org and just send an email that says subscribe in the header or something like that. Uh, it'll subscribe you. And uh, that means you'll start getting emails sent to the list and uh, your emails will be automatically sent forward instead of being blocked. Bear warning, though, the WW style uh, email list is a fairly high volume list. It's one of the higher volumes yeah. in the W3C. Yeah. So you may want to like immediately put it behind a filter or something and just look at it occasionally rather than letting it clog up your inbox. Right. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure. That, that's what I do because I, I appear in every once in a while and I'm like, <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to. I'm glad it's not my job day to day. And that's all I can say. Just because uh, I really. I admire the work that you do because that's just a lot of stuff to wade through and and uh, and uh, do it. And you've been doing it for for years now. So yeah, I spend three to four hours a day managing emails. Oh my god! Wow, <laughs> it's not it's not wasted effort. Like that's like time spent thinking about responses and whatnot. But still, doing stuff that is just looking at my email inbox at some point is about half my work day. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> the exciting life of a standards engineer. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I did want to uh, talk to you about um, one of the things I'm researching right now is is you know the whole retina and uh, pixels and all that stuff right now, right now. And I just want to like just you know just walk things by you and just see what what you think because we have to. <clears throat> there's so many things that you know what designers have to deal with. I just want to get your opinion on them. Um, and the whole notion is uh, you know I was writing up about like oh these are the these are the ways we measure um, you know. Units and CSS, and so and of course the pixel, right? The and coming from a print background, it's you know, pixels has always been like you know a fraction mm-hmm. of an inch, right? And so right. things have totally changed because you know uh, you know resolutions differ from you know machine to machine, and then now we have tablets to smartphones, and so uh, so there isn't a physical representation of a pixel. Like like I can't just like in a piece of paper say, hey, this is what a pixel. This is where ten pixels are are, are worth, or the distance of. Mm-hmm. Put it up to a tablet or a, a monitor, and have it just be exactly ten pixels. Right. right. Yeah. So that's a, that's not, that's not gonna work. So the new definition of a pixel, based on the spec, is sort of like a it's um it's a kind of a, a growing. I don't, I don't. I'm trying to avoid the math. Like trying to do like a, uh, a metaphor if I can, but just kind of like a, a sliding scale. Like as you go further away, uh, fr- yep. farther away from a, a di- uh, the display, uh, the pixel should, in theory, be larger than right. than the display that's closer to you. That's right. Yeah. So I think there's an easy way to explain this. Okay. Great. Uh, that's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking about this yesterday uh, because you reminded me about it. So the 
ideal of the pixel is measured in a visual angle, a certain amount of degrees of your visual field. Easiest way to think about this is take a quarter, hold it up at about arm's length. Mm -hmm. Now go look at the moon at the same distance. You'll see that they're about the same size. It, don't do it right now because it's probably day <laughs> if you listen to this. But whenever the moon's out, well, it might be out because it's middle of day. I don't know what phase of the moon is. Anyway. <laughs> the moon's gone. If, yeah. <laughs> if the moon's visible and you've got a quarter, you can do this. Right. Hold out the quarter at about arm's length and put it next don't to the moon. Don't try this with the sun, though, audience. Yeah. Probably a bad idea. Probably a bad idea. But you'll notice the two of them are about the same size. Uh -huh. They have the same... Uh, uh, degrees in our visual field. They each take up about half a degree uh, of our visual field. And that's the concept that pixels are built on. Uh, the moon and is about half a degree of our visual field. A pixel is about 0 0.02 degrees. So that's the concept we're looking at. The pixel grows larger if the... The ideal pixel is a larger distance for further away screens, but it looks the same size because the screen's further away. And that's the point we're trying to get at with the pixel. Then, of course, you have to map the CSS pixel over to device pixels. And traditionally, it's been a one-to-one -one mapping, but now with retina devices, it's two-to-one. With mobile devices, it's often a weird ratio, somewhere between one and two. Mm -hmm. And we're coming out with even higher def devices that might have a three-to-one or four-to-one ratio. Okay. And then printing, which we've always been familiar with, ranges anywhere from two to 10-to-one. Okay, so my my brain just got blown in that last piece <laughs> that you just had there. So so we just you just define like CSS pixel as um, as this you know changing construct you know it, the the angle the, the quarter of the moon and then the device pixel is different than the CSS pixel. Is yeah, right? yeah. Okay. Because a, a device pixel obviously is an actual physical size, okay. but whenever you Different devices are meant to be viewed at different uh, lengths. Mm -hmm. Your average desktop monitor mm -hmm. is meant to be viewed about two feet away from you. Right. And at that distance, a CSS pixel is about a hundredth of an inch, mm -hmm. which is the traditional ratio, 96 pixels to one inch. Right. Um, whereas in a smartphone, it's meant to be held maybe a foot from you. Right. The pixel is much larger. Mm. Um, so the... Or wait, other way around. Right. Pixel's much smaller in absolute sizes, but right. it still looks the same size, and so the pixels, phys hardware pixels, can be a little bit different. Okay. So let's start with a concrete example for like web designers. I uh, know this is not the proper way, but what if I specify you know a font to be twenty four pixels? What mm -hmm. does the Retina display, which has twice the density, do with that instruction? Nothing that you can see. The uh, it should be the same size, more or less, as a twenty-four pixel uh, text on a non-retina screen. That's the whole point of defining pixel in this abstract way, so that it doesn't matter what device you're viewing it on; it should always look the same size. Whereas, if you're defining in hardware pixels, it'd be half the size, and all of our websites would be completely unreadable on a retina device. So, like, um, yeah, and so. Is there any way with CSS that I guess I should know this, but anyway, that we could just specify a device pixel with CSS? There is not. Okay. Uh, that's partially, there's part of a good reason for it, and somewhat just no one's ever really cared enough to do it. Mm. So, a big controversial thing that came around a year or two ago was that we actually redefined CSS as physical units the CSS inch, the CSS millimeter, et cetera, mm. to all be multiples of a pixel. Mm. 
Previously, the definitions floated a bit. This was important because the CSS pixel, even though I defined it in terms of that visual angle thing, that's like the ideal pixel, the reference pixel. Right. But on most devices, it's actually going to be some integer multiple of the device pixel size, and that might be a little different than the ideal pixel size. Um, so the actual size of the pixel can vary a bit, a little bit, between devices, even if you're viewing them at the same distance. Whereas absolute units are supposed to be you know, the same size wherever you go. You see an inch, it's an inch, right? But turns out a lot of people didn't really think about this. They tested it just on their devices where the ratio of pixel to inch was a particular value. And when you view it on other devices where the ratio is a little bit different because the size of the hardware pixels are different, suddenly layouts break. You get things wrapping when they shouldn't, et cetera, and things just look really ugly. So this happens so much. It happens a whole lot with fonts because a lot of people used points to specify their fonts. And points are a physical unit. They're 172nd of an inch. Um, this happened so much that we just had to go ahead and give up and say, nope, sorry, CSS physical units aren't real physical units. They can vary a bit, just like pixels can. Um, so now an inch is exactly 96 pixels. It never varies. A point is exactly four-thirds of a pixel, et cetera. So now I forget what I was talking about. <laughs> oh, like, so we want CSS pixels to device pixels? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Why, why we don't have a device pixel unit. Yeah. Basically the same reason. Um, if, if we give, we originally tried to give people real physical units, and because they just didn't test on multiple devices, they didn't realize that, they, that different, the ratios between different things specified in different units can vary, they accidentally screwed it up. Nothing wrong with that. It just means that, yeah, you kind of have to test your devices everywhere, but a lot of people don't do that. I don't often do that. Um, so same thing, if you do a hardware pixel, you might think, oh, if I make this five hardware pixels wide, it looks great. It's perfectly legible and wonderful to look at. And then you have somebody with a higher resolution device and it's tiny and unreadable and you can't get it. Or you go to a low res device and it's all huge and fat. So anytime you give like a, a real absolute unit like that, uh -huh. there's a strong chance that somebody who's testing on a particular device only will not realize that other devices are going to totally f*** up with that one. Right. So yeah, that's why we haven't really given that yet. Yeah. There are some good arguments for physical unit sizes, though. Mm -hmm. For example, um, touch target. Your finger, it's generally recommended that anything you're going to be touching with your finger be, I think, at least 8 millimeters high, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you actually say 8 millimeters in your CSS, that size can vary a bit. It can be about two-thirds smaller in the worst case, only like five and a third millimeters. Right. Um, and that's actually too small. You can make them extra big to make up for that, but then things are chunky on some other ones. Mm -hmm. So providing a unit that is specialized for that kind of thing, like a, a touch unit, so you can say this thing is one touch high, that mm -hmm. might be really useful, and it's less likely to be abused because it's so obvious what it's for. If you're making something like 50 touches wide, what the hell are you doing? That's weird. <laughs> So uh, that that gives me a couple of questions. One is, you know, we've had since the dawn of CSS these these units like inches, millimeters that you know map to the real world. We use those all the time, but don't seem to make as much sense for uh, the web. Um, why do those exist, and and would people actually use that? I mean, you gave one great use case right there of uh, you could use millimeters to specify a size for a button, but 
outside of that, can are there other use cases for for that? And do people actually? I never use anything like inches or millimeters or even points. You would be surprised at how many people use points for font sizes. It's just people who are used to sizing things in Word. They know how big 12-point text is. It's a good size. And so they'll write it as 12-point. They don't know that 16 pixels is the exact same size. Um, So there's actually a whole lot of uh, content authored by... I guess I can call them kind of amateurish. Not really professional, but they're probably doing it just for their job. there's a lot of content out there authored by these kind of people who, through no fault of their own, they're using what they're familiar with, they're using what we gave them, and it just messes up. And, right. and then a lot of people who came from a straight print background are used to using inches or metric units or whatever to size things. And it seems reasonable for them to say, oh, this needs to be five inches wide, rather than saying, ah, this needs to be about 480 pixels wide. Right. But that five inches doesn't really map to if you put a ruler down on all these different devices, it's not really five inches. Right. Uh, in general, the ratio, the real length of it will be somewhere between two thirds and one and a half times the real length. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so much so for precision, are, so much for absolute values. <laughs> yeah. So th- those are worst cases. Usually it'll be within about 10% or so, but still you can't make a ruler in CSS and expect it to measure real lengths. Right. So, yeah. So, so the, oh, okay. the ratio of a CSS pixel to a device pixel is totally dependent upon uh, the device manufacturer, right? So they, Correct. They, they sort of say, okay, we'll say one CSS pixel is two of our device pixels. Yes. Yeah, there's no standard around that. Okay. No, it's explicitly not supposed to be. The device manufacturer knows how large their device pixels are, and they know how far away the device is generally going to be used. Mm. And while... Doing that, using that information, you can figure out how many device pixels a CSS pixel should be worth. Okay. So, like, so by device pixels, we're talking about the density of the screen. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Sweet. Okay. And then, um, and so because like some devices are like one point five, or is that right? Or yes. Um, so those are an interesting case. Um, like I said, we usually try for an integer number of pixels. There's reasons for this involving like things get a little blurry if they fall on half pixel boundaries and whatnot. Right. Um, but there's another stronger force here, which is compatibility with iPhones. Uh, a lot of people who write web pages for mobile just tested on their iPhones, and iPhones are 320 pixels wide. Mm-hmm. So if, you're, if your phone reports the size of the viewport as being wider or narrower than 320, you might get some things messed up. So they've often adjusted their ratios so that the number of device pixels maps to exactly 320 CSS pixels, mm-hmm. so that it still looks all right on an uh, iPhone, de- the layout of a site designed for iPhone looks good, even if some edges are a little blurry or something like that. Right. So, so basically, what you're saying is like competitors who make who make hardware will just still use whatever the iPhone, you know, make sure that the pers- the iPhone yep. websites look great on their devices. Yeah, it's all about the amount of content out there, and there's a bunch of content optimized for the iPhone. So, okay, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Hmm. okay. Um, um, so. My next question is, so with CSS pixel, we define that we have device pixel, which is related to pixel density, which I, mm-hmm. they're the same thing, right? Or is that yeah. wrong? Okay. Mm-hmm. Pixel, yeah, yeah. pixel density, and then, uh, so those things are kind of, you know, they're not, they're mutually exclusive, is that right? They're just like, they're, they can be different things. Yeah, unrelated. Unrelated, totally, totally different. And, and then, so you have a web page, you have design, uh, you're looking at it in, in the iPhone, let's say, then we bring up uh, 
the viewpoint, the viewport uh, meta tag, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we say, hey, we want this uh, viewport tag to be uh, set to with 380, we're actually we're just like that just changes the whole dynamic. Um, yeah. Okay. And unfortunately, I really don't. I've never done enough mobile development to really dig into how the hell the viewport meta tag works, what the units exactly mean. Mm-hmm. So I can't talk a whole lot about it, but okay. uh, it gets weird, but it does allow you to more or less change the ratio manually. Right. Yeah. It, it seems to me like, uh, we, like I think Dave brought the fact that I could be totally wrong on this and hopefully we get lots of like people maybe clarify this, but like we talked about having like uh, the device pixel, like kind of like we're talking about hard coding pixels into the device or something like that. We're like, mm. Like we, you, you know, you don't want to do that per se, but it seems like you could just override that by just saying, "Hey, meta name viewport, viewport uh, content equals three hundred, you know, three hundred twenty pixels or something like that," and, and right. to- totally like hosing, <laughs> hosing things up pretty good and and not doing that. So, but then also we have like width equals the, the device width too. So it's kind of like. Right. So, okay. Cool. And so, like, with equals device width is a useful. That's the only part of it I've ever really used. Yeah. Um. Or maybe something similar. But anyway, that basically turns off the automatic zooming because mm-hmm. normally we lay it out because even at the closer distance, a mobile device screen is still a lot smaller than your average monitor. Mm-hmm. So you know we've got the virtual viewport that's like twelve hundred pixels wide or whatever, and then we zoom it so that only 300 pixels or 400 pixels of it is shown at a time. Right. And you can zoom in and out or whatever. Uh, but do it, that part of the meta viewport at least turns off that zooming, saying, hey guys, I know what I'm doing. Right. This is totally a mobile site. I'm okay with getting the real width of the screen. Right. Don't screw things up. Right. And so, so basically, like, yeah, so that, that's when you are using media queries, you're, in the, you're using like optimized images for a mobile delivery and you know what you're doing and you just don't yeah. want people to like Pinch and zoom. Exactly. Okay. Because your site's already designed to be viewed at that size on purpose. Right. So hey, you don't really need it. All right. So yeah. So if you, if you were to use that, then and you were at the mercy of you know, you know, you know when Steve Jobs came out with the first iPhone like announcement, you know, he viewed the New York Times and he was tapping on the columns and stuff like that and, mm. and zooming in and stuff like that. So like so, you would only use uh, width equals device width if you were just like hey. This site is beautifully designed for the iPhone or iPad or the mini query I'm using right now. I, I don't want you to pitch and zoom. Okay, awesome. Exactly. Cool. And um, so I have a question about uh, different devices. I mean, the iPhone. When you load a regular web page that doesn't have that device with set, it the iPhone squeezes it down so you can see it, and then you pinch and zoom. Is that uh, the stock behavior of all mobile devices? At this point, yes. They've had to reverse engineer each other a bit. But the concept of this virtual viewport, the one that's actually way bigger than the screen size that we lay the page out into, Mm -hmm. uh, everybody does that now. Plus, everybody does a bit of text size adjustment. Uh, We use some heuristics to find out what's likely to be the major text on the page, and then go ahead and just blow up its text size so that it's viewable even in the zoomed out version, where the rest of the text on the screen might be too small, but the article text is a visible size. This is another another thing that pretty much everybody has coalesced on, and that part, well, both of these parts, we're actually trying to standardize now. Uh, we've got the viewport spec that some of the Opera devs are working on, and then I think David Barron from Mozilla is working on the text size adjust property to specify that behavior as well. So, yeah, everybody has 
come to agree on the same set of behaviors here, partially because they're good ideas and they're not perfect, but they're all right. And partially just because once one site's done it, people come to expect it and sites come to be designed for it. So you kind of have to match. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do want to bring up one point is that uh, we had the uh, response to the Web Design Summit at Environments for Humans, and um, I was talking to, um, or what was it? Uh, no, it was the UX Web Summit, actually. That's so sorry to say. And we had a um, Jen Downs, who works for MailChimp, and she does the mobile uh, research um, mm-hmm. at, at MailChimp, and, and um, she was talking about her. She does a lot of uh, uh, guerrilla usability studies or, like, you know, focus groups, not focus groups, but just. A lot of testing on mobile devices and how they read email because it's Mailchimp is mm-hmm. a, is a great a great uh, email um, company and um, and she found out like no one knows about pinch, pinch and zoom like no one knows about the tap the double tap oh wow yeah it's like it's very few people who who know about it so actually do it so it's kind of kind of interesting that um, that we need to realize it because I because when when the web first came out I was just like why do we need to make responsive websites when the, to fit to the screen when people just double click it but yeah, it was really kind of stunning to find out that like maybe one person out of you know so many just actually actually does that so wow. that's kind of crazy so but uh but yeah so but yeah, yeah. use your media queries people yeah cool um is so is this doing the web standard stuff just your just your day-to-day you're like your day-to-day job you don't work on any other projects other than spec writing or or helping the community, the working groups? So officially, I'm on the WebKit team here in Chrome. Um, so I do a little bit of coding in WebKit. Not very much, though. I'm not even a committer yet. You only have to get like 10 or 20 patches in WebKit to become a committer. But I'm close, real close. <laughs> uh, even though I've been working here for like two years. But... Um, I'm trying to pick that up now. It's one of my goals this quarter is to actually get a committer status. But... Aside from that, that's only a tiny fraction of my time. I spend the vast majority of my time working on specs or communicating with standards bodies, both on stuff that I'm doing myself, like the specs I write, because I write like a dozen of them, or helping some of my other fellow engineers get their own specs written or their own ideas uh, graduated through the standards process. So I try to be like a little resource there, but that that's my job. My job is just doing standard stuff. Never would have expected it earlier, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's awesome. That sounds great. Well, and you're in a unique uh, position, too, because you are working with a team of people who are actually you know, building a web browser. And so they're implementing these suggestions around how CSS should evolve. Um, how much within the, the Chrome team do people sort of just sit around and say, wouldn't this be great if CSS had this? And wouldn't it be great if we could do that? A surprising amount, actually. Um, and I'm specifically part of a small little sub-team, a little task force or whatever. We're just loosely defined, nothing official, called Parkour here in Chrome. That specifically <laughs> focuses... Yeah. So you guys run all around the city jumping off of uh, buildings? Is that how that works? Or Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> uh, but our goal is just to find... Well, is to make the web easier to develop delightful web apps. We want to find the things that make it hard to develop web apps right now, whether it's CSS, JavaScript, HTML, anything in the web stack, and fix those so that web apps are as easy to develop as possible and as good as possible so that we can continue to successfully like 
fight against native apps and keep the ideals of the web, which are like source code and hyperlinking like mm-hmm. no other system has. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I like a, a local JavaScript guy here in Austin is uh, Kyle Simpson, and his thing is like never bet against JavaScript. Yeah. So, and uh, so I feel like, you know, never, and also never, never expect HTML to die. So I just, just, I think HTML is going to be around for a long time. So. Yeah. I don't like to give predictions that long out, like within a year or something, yeah. but something like the web. Mm-hmm. should hopefully survive around forever. Even if it's not explicitly HTML, even if we come up with better technologies or whatever, the fundamental structure of the web is too useful and great for everybody to really give up. I don't think we'll ever be replaced by native apps because, what the hell, you can't really blog on native apps. You can't link <laughs> between things. You can't do so many things that the web just allows by its very nature. Yes. That yeah. We'll never lose it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, uh, one question we always ask our, our guests is, uh, where are you uh, most passionate about right now? About Right, okay. So I've got two things that I'm really excited about right now. Uh, a is Grid. Recently supplanted Flexbox in my head because I'm mostly done with Flexbox. But Grid, <laughs> I've been salivating over Grid since I first learned about the CSS Working Group and read the old template layout spec, which was the predecessor to this. Right, yeah. yeah. I've been wanting to develop my websites with this forever. Uh, like f- multiple years. So, so templates, being able- templates is dead, right? That's not. Yeah, if you've it? ever seen the template layout spec around, that has yeah. been superseded by grid layout. Same okay. functionality, slightly different syntax. It's the same thing. Okay. So we're just doing it with the grid layout spec now. Um, so that's I'm really excited about because I'm going to be working on that. I'm going to be pushing that forward, and in the near future, I will be able to finally use it in my sites. And oh my god, so good! Yeah. Um, the second thing I'm getting pretty passionate about is we've been recently looking at. I've been recently been hearing a lot from web authors, uh, specifically people working on like real, like powerful apps. There's two things that everybody has pain with, that everybody hates in the modern web, and it's one of those things that like, whenever you hear why somebody went to a native app or something, it's almost always these two things. The first one is responsive stuff with touch, like trying to move things around with touch gestures in a responsive Mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Super slow right now, super janky, because you have to wait for the touch event to finish, go all the way through the browser's plumbing, and then you can react to it. Mm-hmm. By then, it's like 10 milliseconds later, the user has already lost the feeling of immediacy. It doesn't feel natural. It doesn't feel like you're dragging it. It feels like you're moving your finger and something's chasing it. Mm-hmm. So I want to fix that, and I have some good ideas for... That sound really crazy if I tried to explain them, so I'll just wait for <laughs> me to actually produce some decent text for it. Uh, but... Implementers over here on Chrome think they're really reasonable. Right. Uh, and, and then the second one is large or infinite lists. These show up everywhere. Oh, your yeah. Tweet, your tweet stream, your Facebook timeline, your Google Plus timeline, everything. It's really hard to do those performantly as the lists get large because you just have too much DOM, you have too much garbage that gets collect, uh, left around, not collected well. And you can manage it yourself. You can start destroying elements or whatever. But it's a lot of fiddliness and it's really hard to get right. It's hard to get looking good and feeling good to the author. And we can totally fix that. We can just take that out of your hand and just make it work for you. So you don't have to do anything. You just put stuff out there. The browser removes things and re-adds them or whatever as it needs. It should be totally simple. And I'm wanting to solve this. So those are my like goals for the quarter is at least get out some preliminary ideas for solving those two things uh, in front of some standards bodies. 
Yeah. So we've been talking awesome. about them a lot internally. Cool. That's great. Cool. So, and um, how can people find you and uh, follow you on the web? Or the internet? Yeah. So um, I'm Tab Atkins on Twitter, T-A-B-A-T-K-I-N-S. My website is xanthir.com, X-A-N-T-H-I-R. And my blog's up there, xanthir.com slash blog or whatever. My plus, I have no idea what my plus ID is, but if you go to xanthir.com slash plus, like the character, not the word, uh, it'll redirect you over to my plus sign as well. I don't post much on plus. If you really want to know, like listen to me, follow me on Twitter, or subscribe to the RSS feed for my blog. Um, But yeah, that's the best way to contact me. Don't directly email me. Some people do it. It's a little bit annoying. I prefer communicating with you through standard stuff or through Twitter. (laughs) Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much Mm -hmm. uh, for being here. Uh, And thanks to Chris from Canada, who's uh, usually a producer on the show right now, but uh, his wife just had a baby girl. And so he can't be with us today, but um, definitely follow him on Twitter on iChris on your iDevice of choice. Uh, Thanks to uh, the listeners uh, for, for being with us for so long. Uh, It would be great if you could just raise up on iTunes if you can. Uh, and help get us the word out on Twitters and the Facebooks. Uh, and always check out your show notes at nonbreakingspace.tv for all links discussed during the episode. And again, thank you so much, Tab, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Tab. Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. Talk later. <laughs> <laughs>